This podcast is brought to you by 3B, the mental wellbeing company, hosted by Claire and Sue, co-founders of 3B. When you've got your wellbeing mojo on, you're firing on all cylinders, you're accepting of whatever comes your way, you're being resilient. We believe that one size does not fit all, and we want you to discover your own wellbeing mojo. So join us on our podcast journey where we'll be exploring the many different aspects of mental well-being. And hopefully, you can learn what you need to get your well-being mojo on. This week's podcast features an extract from our weekly radio show, Let's Talk Well-Being. Good afternoon. It's Thursday. It's 12 o'clock. So it's time to talk well-being. Thank you so much for joining us. It's good to have your ears and the rest of you um, to join us for this next two hours. Um, It's Sue here from 3B um, at the helm, as it were. uh, And I'm joined by Claire, of course. Morning. Afternoon. Is it? It still seems like morning for me. Still seems like morning for you. And it might for some of our listeners as well, which is absolutely fine. Um, We are joined in the studio today by the lovely Sean. Hello, Sean. Hello, guys. How are you doing? Uh, We're really good. How are you today? Not too bad. Not too bad. Excellent. Yeah, we've had a definite sort of shift in the weather. We've got that kind of autumnal crispness in the air, but still a bit of sunshine trying to come through the clouds. So um, you're with us for the next couple of hours, hopefully. Um, We're going to be chatting with Sean uh, very shortly. He's going to be telling us all about his mental well-being journey uh, and his story, which is really, really interesting. So do stay tuned. Um, And then in our second hour, we're going to be continuing uh, with our emotional wealth discussions Claire aren't we? We are yeah Yeah. we've got another juicy one for everybody today haven't we? We have yeah links with some of the other presuppositions but definitely a juicy one yeah Yeah. so it's, it's related to saying no and how that can kind of impact on our mental health and on our emotional wealth and our emotional well-being so yeah lots of uh, interesting things to chat about there so without further ado let's have a chat with sean sean thank you so much for making time for us this afternoon we really appreciate you coming into the studio and we love it when we have a live studio guest you can kind of come and join us um here in halton um sean i'm just going to read out a little bit of information that you've sent to me about about yourself if that's okay um so it says here that sean bailey wellness cic was founded upon the lived experience of spinal cord injury and mental health recovery of yourself, Sean Bailey. You'll never walk again was the prognosis that you were given. And so the further challenges and recovery that followed could be described as unlikely and remarkable. Um, and I love the strap line that you have. We strive every day to ensure we can improve the health and well-being of others. So, Sean, some quite, you know, kind of profound and, you know, really impactful stuff there in your introduction. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure our listeners are really fascinated to sort of hear more. Um, I just wonder if I could kind of sort of take you back to, you know, when you were experiencing this. How how long ago was it that you had your injury? So in 2005, uh, April 2nd, 2005, I broke and dislocated my neck. 
at the C5, C6 level, so really, really high level of spinal cord injury. Um, I was playing football and I was immediately paralysed from the neck down. Couldn't feel any sensation whatsoever. All I could feel was heat um, and it was then a case of nine-hour surgery, uh, a three-day induced coma and then almost seven months in hospital transitioning from the acute stage where you you kind of... um, Letting the body do its thing, and then you into the recovery stage where you are doing, where your focus is physio, occupational health, learning how to rebuild your life. Um, now you've acquired a disability, which at the time I was 22. I just turned 22, so I was quite quite young, and it was a lot a lot to take on at that age. Um, so yeah, that that was that's where it all started. Wow such a you know so many things going through my mind as I'm listening to you describe that and you know at any point in anyone's life but as you say to be a 22 year old and you're there kind of out just playing football just completely randomly sort of this thing wow this sort of hits you changes the trajectory um you know of 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 your life at this point so you were obviously someone who you're into football you're into kind of activity and i know that plays a huge part in the organization that you run i'm sure in your personal life um i mean what was it about you sort of when did you have this kind of did you have a moment did you have an epiphany or was it a gradual realization that you wanted to do something with this experience and turn it into you know this work that you now do yeah so for for when I was 22, when I broke my neck, um, I'd worked in corporate finance as an accountant, manager of many people, all the way up from 20, from 17, from leaving school, um, progressed my career until, until forming the organisation. Uh, and it came, it was about two or three years ago that I had the idea. Um, throughout my life, after after breaking my neck, I started to work in uh, Paralympic football, working at Manchester United and working oh, wow. for the Football Association. And at that same time, I was still working in the private sector as an accountant. So I sort of used coaching sport as the replacement for not being able to play. And I was working with some really high-end athletes that were representing Great Britain at the 2012 Paralympics. So I was educating them and working with them to support what they eat how they sleep all the stuff around what we now call lifestyle we were doing that well I was doing that years and years ago and I I would then go I'd work at Man United in the evening and I'd go back into work the next day into a big, massive law firm in Manchester um, and I would see people that were you could see that they were not very well into, or they were not great in, in great health it's probably the right word to, right thing to say and I just had this idea that what I was learning and teaching players, that I could bring that into the workplace because it was so needed. But at the time, it just wasn't a thing. Yeah. Well-being in the workplace wasn't a thing. Right, yeah. Um, so as time went on, I changed jobs, continued to work in football. And the the, the idea for the organisation, that, that was where it started. And I was thinking about it for a long time, but I just couldn't see how it would fit. I had all this knowledge, all this experience. Um, and then when I had my mental health challenges, which looking back started when I was a lot younger, it started before the spinal cord injury. That was just a sort of 
trigger for them to exasperate. I, when I was in hospital, um, I was following a process. The doctors didn't tell me to do this. I did this on my own behalf because I always, I guess, don't, followed this when I was playing sport, and that was get eight hours sleep, eat the right food, get as much movement as you can. And they bolted on top of that. I had to have a hydration strategy, and that sounds a little bit out there, a hydration strategy. But with a spinal cord injury, I've ended up with chronic chronic kidney disease, so you're prone to urine infection, so you, that's why you have the hydration sh- strategy. So no doctor told me to do that. I followed it and recovered, unlike the recovery. When I had my mental health challenges, I went into into a process, if you like, um, it was almost like a self-help group and they were trying to, they recommended that you followed their steps. So I followed their steps and it just wasn't quite doing it for me. So I said, what have I done before? Okay, I've recovered from spinal cord injury, this is what I did. Not realising it was actual process, put the two together and it was just like the results were just, again, unbelievable. So that gave me the idea that there's something in this. So a lot of my work is centred around sleep, exercise, food, um, and fun, so leisure, people having fun. So we call it the step principle, sleep, Mm. uh, sorry, the self principle, sleep, exercise, leisure, in brackets, fun, F for food. And we focus on all those things, and we teach this to children, to adults. It's it's relevant for everybody. So I I had an idea that there's something in that. Um, So COVID landed, I'd set the business up, um, not really having an idea about what we wanted to do. We had a, a, a portfolio of, of products that we'd piloted in, in my workplace that I was in because the, the world was changing a little bit around well-being, so well-being in the workplace was becoming a thing. And I guess I was a couple of steps ahead of the trend. Um, I was doing that type of stuff, talking about what I'm talking about now. Um, and people watched, oh, how do you do that? How do you do that? So I put a couple of sessions together and... Came up with the idea that we would, we had a product. Um, we I did some training to become a mental health first aid instructor, and I was recruited from my course to become an instructor. So we had two products. COVID came. Any ideas that we had stopped. So I was still in corporate sector. Uh, moved to a, a, a another law firm after working in the construction sector. Still in finance. Still adding up and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And um, just literally where we were based in Sandymoor, we couldn't go out. So I did some exercise on a patch of grass opposite my house. So all it was was me, a patch of grass. And when we could do it in twos, but keep your distance, someone came with me, one of my friends. And um, someone was walking past. I said, oh, I'd love to do that. I said, come and join in next week. And the restrictions were starting to lift at this point. So we did it all within the, the parameters of what you could do. And it just... This, this group exercise program, I called it Exercise for Mental Health because where I'm based in Standymore, I'm not from Runcorn, I'm not from Holton, I'm from Newley Willows. I don't really know a lot of people mm. in that area. So I thought, I know my wife, obviously, and I'm not lonely, but you, you, you kind of miss your friends. Mm. And, it, and there is a little bit of a, I don't know, a third-party loneliness that sits on you because you've not got your close friends or family by Absolutely. except you. Yeah. I, it's probably the right word to say. So we created this thing for people, and, and there's a lot of other people in that boat. They've moved into that area from out of the out of the area, and they didn't really know many people. So this exercise initiative, well, it was masquerading as an exercise initiative, was actually a way to just connect. Yeah. Yeah. And it just went from 
it, it just boomed overnight. Literally, within six weeks, we were we were sort of servicing 30, 40 people. Um, so we had to expand it and expand it again and expand it again. And we, that, that that was the, almost like the catalyst for the business. That gave us a revenue stream. And it gave me the courage to say, you know what, I can do this. Um, and I eventually stepped away from the private sector and stepped into Sean Bailey Wellness, and we've been thriving ever since. Wow. It just seems that there's, oh gosh, there's so much about the story that, that comes across in the way that you're explaining it that is very instinctive for you. It feels like, you know, you're kind of following, like you're saying, like the doctors have kind of given you this information, but actually you were following your own pattern in terms of what you needed. And it fits really well, actually, with our kind of whole ethos, Claire, doesn't it, about, you know, kind of there's no one size fits all when it comes to our health in, in any shape or form, your physical health, our, you know, obviously there's kind of basic needs and recommendations, but actually we have to find what works for us. And it sounds like that's very much something that you've done. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I think I, I, I kind of say this, Western medicine, not to, I'm not having a pop at anyone or any profession, you know, the NHS saved my life in essence, However, Western medicine is very good at fixing acute injuries. So if you break your arm, you break your neck, you break your leg, we can deal with that. Eastern medicine is great at showing us how to live. And the two don't cross over. Um, So things like, you know, no doctor was telling me to get eight hours sleep, but sleep's one of the basic human needs. And in a hospital... Uh, when I was in the acute stage of the injury, I was being woken up every six hours to have medication, change catheters, all types of really difficult stuff. But you didn't get rest. Mm. And n- the lights were horrendous, so it was really bright, so it was really difficult to sleep. And if you're not getting a basic human need, which is sleep, we all need you know, a, a certain amount of day, um, then you're not going to be at your best to try and recover. And if you, you know, zoom that out of hospital, my situation to even everyone going about the day-to-day lives, everybody f- doesn't perform as well when they're underslept. Mm. And it, it's so relevant now because we've got so much, so many distractions. We're so we're, we're more connected than ever, but more disconnected than ever. True. And what what I mean by that is that everyone's got friends on Facebook that they probably never even met. So are they really friends? But everyone's got these screens in front of them and there's always something There's always something on the to-do list. So it's like sleep gets sacrificed. We, we push the boundaries on that. I think, right, I'll just lob a couple of hours off my sleep and before you know it, you're in a cycle that you can't get out of. And I, with my work, I see it time and time and time again. People underestimate the power of... The, the the things on that self principle that I rec- that I talked about so the sleep the power of exercise I think we only realised the power of exercise when we couldn't do it during COVID <laughs> when you're only allowed out for the hour everyone was craving for the gym etc yeah. that was a real big realisation moment and, and as well food nutrition it, it's we re- especially where we are in Holton it's a really challenging picture. Um, what you put on your fork and what you put on your plate it, it, it's, it's medicine, essentially. It, it, it's fuel in your body. And for me, when I was in sp- with spinal injury, I had to 
you know, I was trying to just, the, the energy that you would utilize just to sort of try, so when you paralyze, you're trying to move your toe on a physio, but the energy that that would take out you, such a simple thing was so much. Mm. So I felt that hospital food isn't great in any way, so seven months of it, it is tough. So I was getting food brought in, my thinking around it was right, I need the right fuel if I've got to have the energy, the energy that I need to do this has got to come from the right place and well i've got to be able to get it it's like it's like going to the petrol station to fill your car up and only filling you need a full tank to get somewhere only filling it halfway that is how i was i was equating it to and, you, and then you wouldn't put diesel in a petrol engine you wouldn't put petrol in a diesel engine so i need the right fuel to give me the right energy to do what i needed to do um and I've, that that sticks with me you know it stuck with me throughout um so yeah it's uh I forgot where we were going with that question. No, it's but fine. It's just, it's all really, really useful yeah. stuff, so I think, the, for people to hear. Sorry, go on, Sean. No, no, so it's just, it's just yeah, it's this whole th- picture of of these things that we take for granted, eating, moving, sleeping, mm. basic needs. Yeah. They are, no, they are now so hyper-hacked. Um, you know, you can, you don't even have to leave your sofa to get food delivered to your house to even pay for it. And that food that's coming, it's highly saturated fat. There's high levels of salt and sugar. Yeah. And if you that that is doing damage to your body, it's creating inflammation all over the show, and inflammation leads to illness. Um, so it's re- yeah, it's a really really tough environment, which is why I value that self principle so much. I think it's so relevant today, um, just to meet basic human needs. I mean, I, I want to go to a question that's probably going to be tough when you're talking about you know if you can't we take it for granted we're, we're eating we're moving exercise and that kind of thing until maybe lockdown um the amount of people i saw out on bikes walking because i had the dogs so i was out all the time anyway with the dogs walking you know it was lovely to see and that really did stop once the lockdown finished so i do wonder if there's like less people exercising after the lockdown than there was even during around my area that is but you when you get you get used to things you get you take them for granted it was only when i got diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and you know putting socks on putting a top on put me in complete agony because of my you know my joints my limbs all of that so moving then became really difficult for me. And that's when I realised and stopped taking it for granted. Yours is just like a thousand times worse than that because you actually got told you'd never walk again. Mm-hmm. Can I ask, how did that, how did you feel about that? What happened? Because it sounds like you went to a really good place in your head and you started thinking from the background that you come from, I need this kind of fuel in me to get me to even just be able to move mm. my toe. But how did you get there? Um, well, when that when Mr. Al-Masri, the consultant at the time, said to me, his words were, Sean, you need to accept that you're not going to walk out of this hospital. People with C5, C6 injuries do not walk again. And my response to him was, I'll have you a bet I walk out of here. And he must have thought, who's this cocky little sod? He's been in, (laughs) you know, it was was the the countries and one of the world leading consultants in this type of injury. He was an unbelievable man. Um, And I guess 
my upbringing, I was brought up in a really, on what we call a council estate, I don't know what the right word is now, social housing, um, pretty rough area, a lot of deprivation, um, coal mining town, so just... You can see, you can understand the area, that I'm, you know, the type of area that come yeah. So people were highly resilient. You know, Thatcher's Britain was battered our town. Yeah. So we were quite resilient. I'd, I had a job at 13. I was a milkman. I've never not worked since I was 13 years old. So I was a milkman at 13. And I know that's irrelevant, but it, it, you're up at 5 a.m. every day. And I'm talking about sleep. I didn't appreciate it then. <laughs> but you were building, I guess, a level of resilience, um, having been brought up in this with this tough upbringing that you probably, I probably didn't realize the importance of it until that, until the spinal cord injury. So when it, I, I use sport during growing up as my like get out of jail card. I was really good footballer. Um, and you kind of got respected and I, I was not the best pupil at school. I was always, I had loads of potential, but just completely unfulfilled. Um, cause I just wanted to mess about and be the class clown. But the teachers would use sport to almost blackmail me into getting to behaving and doing the work that I needed to do. So, because I was so passionate about that, I'd always been I'd played at a decent sport, at a really good level, different sports as well. That that sort of food, nutrition, to a very basic level, was just ingrained on you. Mm. It was part of the process, part of your preparation, and... That was it. Was my default go-to. I thought if I'm going to do this, I'm going to. So I'm being told I'm never going to walk again, and I'm saying yeah, I will. And when, when you had this sort of clinical team around you, when they all left the room after that message, I just start. I can remember, still see it now. I can remember, I can picture the room. My mum was in tears and, and stuff like that. And I was planning in my mind. Right, I said to her, when you go home, the next time. So the hospital I was in was 90 miles away from where I lived as well. So I was transferred from Warrington Hospital to a specialist spinal injuries unit in Shropshire, the Midlands Centre for Spinal Injuries. The northwest version of that is in Southport, but they didn't have any beds. And I asked, what's the best? to my consultant said, um, Shropshire, go there. So, right, we're going there. So I said to my mum, next time you come, bring me some hand weights so that I can strap round my wrist and just try and move. So I could move my arms and let, my arms at this point. So I was doing, like, dumbbell curls and flies in my bed. And it was just a default position. That, that was it. It was just what was it censored in, in me that um, this is what you need to do. Uh, you know, if you performed at sport, this is what you'd have to do. You'd have to prepare right. So this challenge, if you like, became my cup final every day. So, <laughs> right, I need to prepare every day for this. And I remember, I can remember um, when I'm laying in bed and the bed would come in every three hours, the, the staff, the, the medical staff, and they would press buttons on the bed and it would turn and stuff like that so you'd ne- you wouldn't get bed sores because you've got paralysis, obviously you can't feel things. And I'd be, I'd be coming in and I'd be like doing 30 reps of something. Then they'd be like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm doing 30 reps of this. And I, I built this programme into my head. So I'd do, I think it was five times a day, 10 reps of this, 10 reps of that, 10 reps of this, three times. And I would do that every single day. And my, my, my thinking was, there was no evidence behind this. No one told me this, but my thinking was that I've got nerve damage. So I need to try and stimulate the spaces that those nerves are sat. Yeah. So if it's in my hands, in my legs, I've got to try and move them. Otherwise, they're, gonna, they're not going to function. They're going to die off. And that was it. It was right. 
bring everything you can in. I had everything coming in. It, it looked like my room looked like the gym <laughs> in hospital. Um, <laughs> it was unbelievable. We had all sorts of stuff. Right, get that in, get that in, bring that in. And it was just keep trying it, keep trying things, and, you know, it worked. It's amazing. All it's saying to me is that it's showing resilience in action. You've literally been told this, and you're like, no, uh, that's what you're telling me, this is what I'm going to do. What I loved there is you've gone, there is no evidence about this, but this is what I think, and I'm going to try this yeah. anyway. Because instinctively i think we know what's good for our uh, for ourselves for our yeah. bodies minds and stuff like that like sue said before one size doesn't fit all and clearly it worked for you yeah and i knew that my spinal cord wasn't fully severed and if it was fully severed I, I, you know biology and science it's it's That's impossible it. Yeah. but it wasn't severed it was severely bruised and swollen um there was a little bit of infringement of the metal work that, that i've now got in there but because it wasn't severed, I thought, right, there's a chance. Mm. And if there's a chance, I'm going for it. I'm going to give everything I can to take that chance. Um, I, I met people in there as well. And, and again, this, this we're talking about evidence and almost things like recovery are innate and resilience is a little bit in it. It's almost learned or innate. There was people in there with, in the spinal injury unit with less severe injuries than me mm. that didn't leave walking. Because, but they didn't put the effort in. They didn't. They just basically accepted it. And I can still remember this guy. Um, he was called Wayne. And he was, he'd been in there for about four months when I arrived. And he was still there when I left. And I remember speaking to the nurse and saying, what? what? He, he was quite antisocial because, you know, there's, there was fifth, about 15 people in the unit. And um, a lot of a lot, a lot of young people, which was really, really sad. Mm. Um and I said, what, what, what is it with him? And he's like, he, I remember him, they couldn't really say what it was, but he said, like, he's, he's not as severe injury-wise as some of you guys. And we're, there's us really pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. Um, and, and me walking out with my after my injury, and it was just like, I don't get that. I didn't get why someone would just accept their fate, if you like. Yeah. And it's, I guess that's testament to what I did, that it was the right thing to Well, obviously, it was the right thing to do because I'm here, but... Um, you know, it, it just shows that there's something in that. There's something in that. I mean, there's definitely there's something in your your mindset already. So I know you said you, you'd had like mental health things probably before that. Yeah. Before your spinal injury, but the fact that in your head, basically you're a fighter. You go, you're going right. Well, I'm not taking that from you, and I'm going to go in with this. And part of that could have been your 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 upbringing, but. I think a lot of that is just, it's within you anyway. Yeah. You're definitely coming out fighting, and I think some people don't. Some people will accept what's been said and, and go along with things. From what you know and what you've learned and what you've put into practice for yourself, mm -hmm. is there anything that you could say to those kinds of people who maybe, you know, just go, okay, well, I'm not for him yeah. maybe not going to walk again or I'm not going to be able to fix my mental health or I'm not going to be able to fix my health in general is there something that you would any advice that you would give to people like that yeah I, I think um, one thing I would say about stuff like that where people are accepting of the fate if you like just do a little bit of research listen read listen to podcasts read mm -hmm studies read research read books 
because there are thousands and thousands of people like me that have had serious, serious illness that have, what's the word I'm looking for, gone against the grain and have these unlikely recoveries become, that there's a lot more to them than what we realise. I don't think, doctors as brilliant as they are, they don't know everything and recovery or health it need, it's innate. It is within you, and everybody's capable of improving their health, regardless of their situation. Um, and what I did isn't relevant for everybody. But I was a 22-year-old fit, well, fit person at the time. Someone that was 50 years old and in, in that experience would not have been able to manage what I did, which I, which I completely appreciate. However. That doesn't mean that they don't become healthier. You know, they can still control what they put in the mouth. They can still control what they do at night in terms of going to bed. So I think what what I would definitely say is just research, learn, understand. If you have got a, a diagnosis, learn about it. What can be done? Um, if you can move, move. You know, circulation, lower your blood pressure. There's so many things that go on when you do things like exercise, like get you good, better sleep, like drink water, like you know, relax. You know, just as an example, I'm big into research. Do do a lot of research, obviously, with the job that I do now. You've got to have good evidence with what you're talking about. But there's a study in Japan around there's something called fractals and i don't know if you've ever heard of what fractals are but fractals are the patterns on trees and the patterns in water that occur in nature the only thing they only appear on trees and water and the, again back to this eastern medicine western medicine in japanese culture you may have heard of forest bathing yeah. well forest bathing is where they go into trees for those that don't know where they go into the forest and just chill out essentially but these patterns there is clinical research to show that these can, by just being in nature, being in trees, being around fractals, trees and water, it can reduce cortisol, which is the stress hormone, by up to 60%. 60%. Now, you can do that if you're in a wheelchair, if you're in optimal health, in non-optimal health, but that will impact your health, period. You know, we don't need a physician to say, go and stand in a tree, go and stand by a tree. But the... A little bit of research, and I know there's a lot of stuff out there that you've, you've got to be aware of and, you know, it can be misrepresented and that type of thing. But this is gold standard studies. Um, and that information is, is so valuable that it, it, to do something like that, goodness me. You know, imagine a drug that could reduce symptoms by 60%. They'd be throwing it out yeah, left, right and centre. all over it, Exactly, yeah. exactly. So we've got something there that is readily available to us in Halton, further afield, that um, can help our health. And we just need to be more aware of that. That's obviously why I like being near the sea and paddling and stuff like that in the water. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's... It, 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 we go, me and my family, we go, my two children and my wife, we go a lot to um, National Trust. Tatton Park is one of our favourites. And just we just straight away make a beeline for the gardens. And last week we were, um, we were there, we just sat, it was just by, it's called the Japanese Garden. There's a, there's a bit on forest bathing, actually. And you just feel this 
different sense around you. It's, and it's not me sort of being a bit sort of hippified or anything like that or a bit, you know, because people think that that's what you yeah. like. If you're into that type of thing, you're a little bit, oh, he's a little bit... Uh, a bit odd, but it's not. It's you. You go in there and you feel. If you feel the nature doing its thing, um, so things like that for me have so much, so much power. But taking it back to my story, my injury, there's no one who's going to. No doctor is going to say do that because they're looking at it. And I understand they've been trained a particular way, like anybody in, in any profession, to look at the evidence, look what the research. Well, look what the general view of that is. So generally people with C5, C6 injuries don't walk. So okay, so we'll generalise that. Um, so yeah, it's it's there's a lot of stuff out there that we can access that we probably don't realise the impact and if the more we can do that the better. The problem is we can't commercialise it, can we? That's the uh, mm. that's that's the thing. I think it's interesting, isn't it? Wow, just kind of listening to what you're saying and what, you know, some of the questions Claire was asking you there, there's so much in there about belief, isn't there? And, uh, you know, about kind of belief in self, yeah. belief in, you know, you talked about evidence and you're right, it is important and there is a lot of stuff out there that's a bit, you know, questionable or, but I think it's interesting that we have this perception, isn't it, of something that's a little bit outside of the norm or however you yeah. want to frame it, that we're suspicious of it when, and yet, that's there and that's readily available and it's free yeah. you know, to be able to kind of go out in nature um, you know in this particular area there's a lot of green yeah, spaces yeah. isn't there we're really kind of lucky around here and across the whole of the northwest. Um there's something in there isn't there that's something ingrained in us that or that's a lot of people that kind of questions that like you say you've got people sort of saying to you oh it's a bit hippified and uh, I wonder why we are so why we resist that so much sort of in western society i think there's a culture around that um certainly when going back to when i grew up like whatever the doctor said was like martial it was like law mm. you know if, if the on-call doctor ever came to your house and we had a couple of brilliant doctors by us and i could still dr margin and dr shetty bridge street um surgery and if they ever were on call and they came to your house it was like a big deal you know you had to the house had to be tidy and stuff like that you had to look <laughs> it had to look yeah, like you were yeah. don't show me up yeah, yeah. pretty much yeah. And, and whatever the doctor said that was it you followed that to mm. an absolute t yeah. that was it and culturally that's that that still really does exist people will not do things unless the doctor says and i, I you know i listen to a gp speak i work with a couple of gps and they see that themselves. They understand that even if people are coming into a practice and they've got other practitioners in there, let's say a, a mental health nurse, for example, and someone's coming for, for depression, say, right, I, I, we've got someone in the surgery that can, is better equipped to help you with that. They still want to, the GP mm, yeah. to sort of give them the, the sign-off, if you like. And that, that, for me, is that's reactive health. Yeah. rather than proactive yeah. and I think one of the things I try to make sure around what the work I do is that everyone I work with we're trying to be proactive in terms of looking after our health preventative rather than reactive yeah. and yeah. reactive health the problem's already there yeah. of what that because you're reacting to something and a lot of the time in those instances it's just a case of treat the symptoms treat the symptoms let's lock find out what are the actual root causes mm. 
And instead of going back to the root cause because of the time it will take, because we're reacting to something, it's, okay, let's just put the fire out on the symptoms, mm. but the symptoms are just going to keep popping up and popping up and popping up, and that's where medicine comes in, obviously, um, as opposed to, right, let's take it back a step, let's find out what's really going on, wherever it is, yeah. you know, what what's causing these symptoms, is it inflammation, is it stress, is it, you know, someone's lifestyle, are they not getting enough sleep, are they not eating right, is there something going on somewhere else that is affecting them? Is there something going on in the family? And all that type of stuff doesn't... Because te- GPs have only got 10 minutes of time to work with people. I understand yeah. that. They're under so much pressure. However, this goes back to the point, reactive health. Mm. Um, the more we can get into this proactive, preventative state measures, whatever you want to call it, looking after our essential needs the healthier we will be. The the amount of conversations I've had with doctors around mental health and sleep. We're in a sleep, we're in a sleep, insufficient sleep epidemic at the moment, Mm. in my view, in that we're sleeping less than ever before. And one particular doctor, I was there with my daughter actually, she's got allergies. Uh, Brilliant doctor, brilliant. And he he was on the verge of retirement, but he was so connected to what was going on. And we got into this discussion about what I do, and I said I do a bit of work with people on sleep, and he's like, all right, what? tell me about that. So we're having a chat about it. And I said, what do you think of this? I said, you know, I, and my belief is that if we fix people's, the, the sort of epidemic of sleep loss, if you like, if we slept more, a lot of the mental health challenges that we see would, would disappear because of the, the science is there around when you underslept type of things that happen. Um, and he, he was in full agreement. I said, I think it would be higher than what you realise if we fix the sleep epic problems that we've got in society that probably 90% of mental health challenges would disappear. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a lot of evidence, there's a lot of, um, there's evidence to support that. And there's these places in the world called uh, the Blue Zones. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Blue Zones. No. So these Blue Zones, it was a, a programme funded by the Discovery Channel and it funded a guy called Dan Boetner to go around the world and there's these areas in the world where they've got the most people living the longest, the most condensed um, people okay. live it, so they've got the most centenarians in the world and these, I think there's six or seven of these blue zones and they're not driven by wealth, one of them is Costa Rica very one of the poorest countries in the world you've got Sardinia Tuscany in Italy there's a place in Greece um, Japan and there's a place in California, like Central California somewhere. So they're all over the world. And what they, fi- what they find in these areas is that people essentially have got these preventative measures going on all the time. They're out harvesting the crops or they're, they're eating whole foods. They're getting seven hours plus sleep a night. And in some of these areas, especially in the area in Japan, they don't have a word for depression because it doesn't exist. Yeah. Wow. And that that is mind-blowing to think yeah, that. It is. And that all they're doing are looking after their basic needs. They're eating their mm-hmm. whole foods, they're getting enough sleep. Their exercise might be carrying the crops or it might be doing something else, it just be going for walks or it could be swimming in the sea or wh- whatever it is. They've all got different sort of little um, caveats where there's, there's you know, the vegan, veganism isn't like profound. In Sardinia, they eat a lot of olive oil, uh, and in Italy, rightly so, in Greece, but in, in the Japanese, I think it's called Ikenawa Islands in Japan, they eat a lot of tofu 
that's part of their culture. Um, not a lot of olive oil. In Costa Rica, because it's poverty-stricken, they eat a hell of a lot of beans and whole, like, so, sort of legumes as well because it's yeah. cheap and it's a, that's a staple of their diet. And again, it's whole foods. It's really interesting listening to you. There's so much in here, isn't there, about... Because earlier when you were talking, I was thinking that there's a lot in here about accountability. So this kind of deference to, you know, doctors and GPs, it's almost kind of like, we want... Fix me. Yeah. You know, we want... And I'm not being detrimental to people. I think it's kind of... It's in our programming, you know. Like yeah. you say, it may be in the way we've been brought up or what we've been taught to expect from that. And I think, you know... You know, Claire and I talk a lot in the work that we do about people getting to know themselves, you know, kind of mentally, physically, emotionally, Mm -hmm. and looking at yourself as a whole person. You know, we turn up to things as a whole person. And I think what we've been encouraged to do is kind of separate out all these different factors. And what you're, you're saying is that everything's connected. You know, the sleep thing, I completely agree with you. I think it's a huge factor. But then if someone's not putting the right stuff into their body or if they've got a thing going on at work or they've got issues in their relationship or they're dealing with, you know, a past trauma from life or then that's going to be impacting on the sleep yeah. and it all kind of kind of goes round and, and yeah. sort of affects the other. So there's something in there about knowing yourself and taking that time. It's almost like we don't, we don't see that, you know, we're all busy kind of driven to distraction quite literally with all the shiny things that are kind of yeah. out there that we're meant to be sort of chasing and owning and having so that we can show them on some platform to other people. And I know I'm oversimplifying and I know I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, but I think we're all, we all do it to a certain extent, however aware we are. Yeah. And it's about almost kind of like having to keep coming back to that on a day-to-day basis and kind of what's what's important for me at my core yeah. right now I don't know what what do you think um yeah I think there's I call that sense of purpose okay uh, I think we've all you're quite right about the shiny thing like the magpie who goes after the shiny foil or whatever um reminds me of a book a children's book I can't remember which one it is but besides the point <laughs> um I think you're right I think the with the distraction the hyperconnectivity, the sort of social media the speed of technology the speed of social media that has forced people to lose touch with what's actually valuable um take social media for an example i think in some ways it's fantastic and i think technology is fantastic the way it's moved so fast but my problem with it is i don't think the human race has moved quick enough to manage it effectively and correctly and i'll let's take instagram now i'm my business is on Instagram. Don't tend to use it for what other people use it for. Um, I don't really like taking pictures of myself or what I'm doing, but I know it's part of society now, so you've got to do that. What you never see on there is, you never see a picture of something that's gone wrong. So it's always people at their very best. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got a filter on it. It's someone looking at their absolute best putting all these things on to try and get people to like them, like what they see. Okay, so what's that all about? What is that all about? Break that down, like, for example, okay, here's a picture of me in a brand new shirt. Take a picture of myself for people to give me external, almost accreditation that that shirt looks okay. Let me just put a filter on it so it makes it look even better. Yeah. 
and then let me put it to a load of people that don't really know me to say that's a great shirt and that for me is I, I, I just cannot grasp that concept mm-hmm. I know that there's a bit of evidence around that that sort of likes and I guess connection on social media can can set give people endorphin rushes if you like it's is that like the right word? strokes it's what yeah. we called strokes yeah. okay yeah so, yeah. Called, yeah, so strokes. strokes yeah which um, we all need you know, yeah but yeah where are we looking for those exactly from exactly of, yeah. and i just i i struggle to comprehend that and and to connect with that and, and likewise you know I, I i've heard stories of when people have been speaking on podcasts and that's everything that counselors especially that they were dealing with young people that will put a picture up on on a social media platform, whichever one it is, and if that doesn't get X amount of likes in X amount of time, they will take it down and they will be it will disrupt yeah. their mental health. Yeah. And that for me yeah. is just it's, absolutely outrageous. It's terrifying. It's outrageous. Yeah. Um, and again, going back to these basic needs, we don't. If Instagram wasn't here, we would still be functioning quite well as a human race. You know, it, it's not. I'm talking about sleep, food, exercise. They are basic human needs. That is not a basic human need. And for all the good in the world it does, it does a lot of bad as well. And I, again, going back to the point that I made about the speed of te- the way technologies move so fast, I don't think we as a, as a society have c- quite kept pace to use it responsibly. And now it's... You know, if you think back, if you look at Apple now, what it's become... You know, I have an iPhone, I have a watch, I have an iPad, um, computer. It's amazing technology. But the way the iPhone listens to what you say and, you know, you, you you sort of, you say something like camper van and before you know it, you pop into social media and you've got camper vans all yeah. into you. Yeah. I don't think Steve Jobs, <laughs> when he created Apple, would be, I don't know him, obviously, but I don't think... Having read his books and watched a few films on him and heard him speak, that he would be happy with where it is at now. That it was never intended to do what it's doing, and that's what I mean about technology moving faster than we mm. become. Well, it's, yeah, absolutely. And you look at kind of the origins of the internet and Tim Berners Lee, and you know, and kind of where we are now. You yeah. Know? And I think you're right. I think there's something in there about it's almost like it's human beings. We're kind of like we're in our own way. We don't kind of adapt sort of in the ways that we need to. And I think I think it's difficult because I think you know modern life is increasingly strange, increasingly pressured, and it's about we've all got to have our own personal epiphanies I guess and find our own way through and I think having conversations like this is helpful because it hopefully challenges people's thinking a little bit and maybe just gets them to kind of question you know am I attending to my basic needs it certainly got me thinking about that Sean Sean our time has just absolutely flown by there's so much more that I'd love to talk to you about (laughs) we want to talk to you more about I know it's been absolutely fascinating and I think you've shared so much insight and you know and thank you for being so candid about your journey and your story um we always ask our guests to pick a song yeah uh, something that kind of lifts their mood and sort of gives them that boost when they need it so just just tell us a little bit about the song that you've chosen to play today well Dolby Grey is a Northern Soul. Well, he's, it's a Northern Soul record. Uh, and growing up where I grew up, I was raised by my uncle 
on uh, on Northern Soul. So whenever I hear this song, it makes me want to get on a dance floor that's full of talcum powder and uh, <laughs> shuffle my feet. So well. I think that's fantastic. Being a Wigan and myself, I've got no <laughs> objections whatsoever. That, yeah, um, bit of Northern Soul for you folks on this Thursday afternoon. That was an extract from our radio show, Let's Talk Wellbeing. You can listen in every Thursday between 12 and 2 on HCR 92.3 FM or online on hcr923fm.com